Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24. Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new Redefining Security podcast. Have you ever thought that we are selling cybersecurity insincerely, buying it indiscriminately, and deploying it ineffectively? Perhaps we are. So let's look at how we can organize a successful InfoSec program that integrates people, process, technology, and culture to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at imperva.com. Pentera, the leader in automation security validation, allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at pentera.io. Marco. Sean. You know what? All of our tax money is going what? to uh, the right place. And we don't even use it. Really? <laughs> is, that, is that a virtual place, though? The one that we're not it's using? It's a virtual place. Yeah, it's in the metaverse. Uh, all our money goes there. Which is a completely different place. I mean, digital, <laughs> society, <laughs> cyber society, reality, it's two different worlds. They don't interconnect at all. Exactly, exactly. And that's kind of like uh, the public domain and, and the, the private domain. Never never shall the two meet, right? <laughs> Policies are written without uh, citizens in mind all the time. I don't understanding of how things work a lot of times. Um, now we're playing a little bit, little bit of fun here, but uh, this is an important topic because cyber threats. Obviously, this is Sean Martin. I'm joined by Marco Cipelli uh, as a guest today, and we have Hunter LaCroix on with us. Hunter, it's good, good to have you on. Nice um, to be on. Thank you for inviting me. We're, obviously, we're, we're on redefining cybersecurity. We're all about operationalizing uh, mm-hmm. technology in a way to, to protect the business and, and government entities as well, mm-hmm. which includes state and local and federal uh, agencies. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, You've done some work, Hunter, that uh, suggests that perhaps we're we're investing and spending money on things and then not getting the most out of them in return. And uh, I'm excited to have this conversation. I'm going to leave it there and get let people wonder what the heck we're talking about. Um, I'm going to pass the pass the mic to you and give you a few moments to share a few words about who Hunter is and uh, what you're up to. Yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm uh, Dr. Hunter LaCroix. Um, I'm a professor at the University System of Maryland, where I teach at the University of Maryland Global Campus, as well as other systems within the uh, Maryland system. Uh, previously, I taught at the University of Pittsburgh's Graduate School, uh, taught 
cybercrime, uh, Homeland Security Affairs, emergency management courses, as well as information security courses. Um, in addition to that, my background is for an emergency management perspective. I've worked as a firefighter, EMT, um, rescue specialists for various local and state uh, agencies and organizations, as well as a contractor um, for those same types of services. Uh, for both athletic teams as well as state, federal, and local contracts for emergency management services. So a little, little bit of a little bit of everything. Um, kind of a technical background as well as a, a, a physical disaster and emergency response background, and that's kind of what inspired gelling these two topics, bringing that physical and digital world together, and specifically with the topic of cybercrime, ransomware, and cyber disaster. Um, in the emergency management community, we don't we don't really look at cyber as a true mechanism of disaster. It, it's something that doesn't really hit us from an emergency management perspective, but it really is becoming a critical component for emergency management uh, professionals to, to really have to start planning and, and thinking about in a traditional aspect. Great example is there's a cyber crime every 39 seconds. There's, you know, a increasingly aggressive cyber criminal uh, activity targeting local and state governments. And what inspired our original research was a ransomware strike against a large municipality a couple years ago, where the municipality ended up having to take millions of dollars out of various city accounts to respond to a crippling ransomware strike, where the ransom was really only several thousand dollars, but they lacked the IT infrastructure on hand to respond. And when we were going there to talk to several folks in the uh, municipal offices and, and local leadership, we were asking them, you know, what, you know, what led you to spend 18, 20, 40, you know, million dollars um, for this type of cyber incident response, instead of using the local National Guard unit 10 minutes down the road. And, you know, the, the folks on staff just kind of stared at us and deer in the headlight, you know, so, you know, looked at us and said, well, we didn't even know the guard had a cyber mission let alone that there was, you know, a cyber defense squadron and an IT information security squadron right, right down the street, you know, 15 minutes away. So that was a major inspiration for our research to see how widespread that disconnect and problem was at the local and state level of operations. Yeah, when you when you say emergency response or emergency management uh, and like widespread disaster, the first thing that comes to mind are natural disasters. Uh, driven by weather and, and mother nature, hurricanes and tornadoes and uh, earthquakes and things like that, where it seems we've we've gotten our act together to the, for the most part in providing initial uh, emergency responders and, and then mid-near-term uh, emergency response and longer-term emergency management. Um, are you saying that, and National Guard is part of all of those things, right, at some point, so you're saying that the cyber realm already has this in place with the National Guard? In, in several states, it does. And in several states that we were examining, there was a very robust cyber capability that had developed around the physical disaster response framework. Um, in several places, we asked folks, you know, what happens when there's a flood? They said, oh, we call the local sheriff's office, we call FEMA, and we call the guard. We need sandbags. Okay, what happens when there's a fire? Oh, well, we call... You know the fire department we call the fire the forest service and we call the guard okay well what happens if there's a crippling ransomware strike that takes out you know your city's network the fbi calls you 
Yeah. yeah. No, you, yeah. You, you unplug the computer. That's what you yeah, Exactly. You unplug the computer and that's it. You just don't have a computer anymore. Um, well, no, actually the standard, a lot of folks said, oh, well, we'll just call the FBI. Um, but when we started talking to folks, you know, previous federal agents within the FBI's, you know, criminal investigation services, cyber investigation services, they're, they're not really staffed to respond to a widespread municipal cyber attack like we've seen. Um, they're really for post-incident investigation support. They're there for forensics and for imaging computers to help identify a culprit and attribute it, but they're not really there to stem the bleeding. You know, that's that's that first scale of emergency response you were mentioning. You know, if the fire is still raging in the city, the buildings are going to burn down. It doesn't really matter how we rebuild afterwards. we got to put the fire out first. It's threat mitigation at its source. And, you know, when we started asking folks, why wouldn't you call the guard? A lot of them immediately in the emergency management community said, well, I just I never really thought of cyber disaster the same way as a psychological, you know, connection. And so that's that's actually what we were really examining. And we, we ended up surveying hundreds of National Guard officers, law enforcement, emergency management community folks, uh, local state government officials. And there was an overall distinct difference in how cyber incidents were viewed than physical disasters, as well as the guards role in them. Um, you know, we asked folks, 1200 respondents across those various organizations, you know, is the guard a trusted partner in physical disaster response? 94%. Yes. You know, very strong. Oh yeah, of course. When we asked what's the guard's role in a cyber response, incident response, um, do, they, do they have a role? The answer has dropped dramatically to 50% saying, well, I don't know. So Hunter, let, let me ask you this, and then I, of course I'm here to ask more of a, you know, maybe sociological question, sure. psychological about this integration between the virtual <clears throat> digital world and, and the real society, real with quotes for the people on the <laughs> podcast, I'm doing the hair quote. But my, my first question here is, Whose fault is this? Is it the the the, the company? And <laughs> apart from my fault, of course, I haven't done Abs enough about absolutely. it. Absolutely. But, but is it being provided the information to the company that actually the National Guard does this? Because I got to be honest, I apart from certain local example that we were talking about, like here in LA, there is mm -hmm. an headquarter for support small businesses and so forth. In, in an overall control of cybersecurity response, I didn't know that the National Guard had that role. Uh, you know, guilty. So it's 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 a little bit of everything. Um, in the emergency management training curriculums, when we started talking to you know the, the hundreds of emergency management personnel at local, state, and federal levels, you know, all the way up to to very senior folks down to very very frontline responders. Um, it's not in any training curriculum really emphasized as a mechanism of disaster because, you know, there's a disconnect. I'll just unplug my computer. It's not going to harm anybody. But a great example of that is we started asking folks, you know, what happens? A great example. A year ago, uh, a ransomware strike hit uh, a hospital where an infant died because it, it affected their Wi-Fi connected breathing equipment. Or in Germany, an individual died because he had to be rerouted from a cardiac center where he was supposed to be delivered as a patient to a separate one because they were in the midst of a ransomware strike. In effect, the, the cyber disaster was a cascading effect. It ended up killing those people because they couldn't intake those patients. 
So it's it's a little bit of a lack of understanding and awareness of the guard's role. That was something we did survey and ask. And the predominant answer was, I don't know their capabilities. Um, lack of training, of implementing that mentality within our folks, a lack of sociological background. A great uh, theorist, uh, uh, Matt Drebick does a great work called Sociology of Disaster, and it's fantastic. It's a great piece of work. He talks about technical disasters in that, but he doesn't talk about it from a cyber perspective. He talks about it from, you know, a physical technical disaster angle. If a levee breaks, you know, it's a it's because there was stress and it floods, you know, uh, a, a city. Not what happens if a cyber attack freezes the mechanisms that allow us to channel water from point A to point B, and that overflows the water. They're not talked about in the same vein. So it's, it's more of a sociological framework gap. There was a practitioner gap. And then there's also a true real world policy legal gap. Um, some states locally have addressed this issue with their state legislatures where they have really affirmed and structured up their role for the guard in local cyber incident response. But that's, that's really haphazard. Not every state is equal. And the US federal government is currently there's two bills, one in the House and one in the Senate that, that haven't really gone very, very far that would codify the guards role in cyber incident response at local and state level across the nation for the National Guard Bureau to kind of push out as this is the actual federal interpretation of what's called Title 32 status, the guards state status to respond to incidents. So it's a little bit of everything. I'll, I'll, the gap in the sociological framework for how we look at cyber incidents and how they affect us in the real world to lack of training for some of our emergency management personnel where we, we train them that this is a disaster. You know, fire, get the fire department. You know, flood, get the guard. Cyber incident, it's always a question mark. And when we did ask folks, you know, a great, great example, we asked folks, does cyber have the capacity to disrupt life in our daily, daily functions like a disaster? 97% said yes out of 1,100 personnel. When we ask them, you know, does it have the same ability to threaten life potentially? It was still pretty high, about 90%. And when we ask folks, is there a reason why cyber isn't planned as aggressively? You know, is it because nobody dies, nobody cares? You know, uh, still about 66% said yes. So it's it's a, several incident, several several avenues. Um, that kind of come together, that kind of prevent a holistic look at it. And that's that was what the initial point of the research we were conducting was to try to open up, is from a sociological perspective, from an emergency management perspective, as well as from a sociological framework perspective and a policy perspective. Now, morning. I don't know if you have uh, insight into this, Hunter, but kind of the organization of the organization, if you will, um, <clears throat> Who, who, so you talk about a gap in, in staffing and skills, um, but have, but some places like California having a, a, yes. a program ready to roll. Uh, was that defined clearly by the state, right? So that's a state level guard program. I'm just wondering, are, is it, is it there? Is it then missing at the federal level? And so it, it's kind of funded by the federal and then the states are, left to do what they feel is important Ooh, that's like one fire, of the fire uh, in california might be more important than in uh, 
I don't know, Alaska? I don't know. It's probably well, fires in well, Alaska. Too. Actually, <laughs> actually, Sean, that's a great point. That's actually one of the most contentious issues in any, any disaster response. It's not responding. It's who's going to pay for the response. How are we going to fund it? And when we originally started asking folks these questions, um, you know, that was a major concern. There's two types of statuses for the National Guard. They are both a local and a federal asset. Um, when they are under the federal jurisdiction of the United States, you know, Department of the Army, Department of the Air Force, President of the United States, they're under what's called Title 10 authorities, which is federally, you know, directed. They are federalized as federal troops as part of their bigger branches. When they are under local control, uh, for the state governor and state emergency management organization or the local governments, they're under what's called Title 32, state activated duty status. And with those statuses comes funding. And that also goes back to how we define an emergency and a disaster. When you have a federal declaration of a disaster zone, there is a major flood in Ellicott City, Maryland. There's a major fire out in California. It allows additional infusions of funds for emergency response, five, $10 million with a much more streamlined approval process from the president of the United States to the governor, to those local and state emergency response agencies. We, we don't have a very good definition of that process for a wide scale cyber incident. When there is a cyber attack threatening the national security of the United States, there is a very well-defined role for the federal government cybersecurity agencies, the Department of Defense, CISA, um, the Cybersecurity Information Security Agency, the you know, Federal Bureau of Investigation, the NSA, the Cyber Command. These are, these are very well-defined organizations with very, very clearly defined roles for national security. When you broach it down to the local and state level, it gets murky very fast. The U.S. Army War College did a uh, study in 2018 where they actually looked at state cybersecurity, local state cybersecurity strategy, and they actually said, we've got this at the federal level. There's a huge gap at the local and state level, and we'll figure it out later. And it was, it was, uh, it was, a, great, it was a great study. It wasn't on the Army to figure out how to do it at a state level, um, but it was at least something where the community has had that gap for quite some time. And states have had to kind of step in lacking national legislation clarifying their role. When we started talking to folks in different states, there were drastically different opinions on the legal interpretation of what their guard units could or could not do. Some were way better than others. Um, a great example would be Ohio. Uh, Ohio has both codified their National Guard's role in local and state cyber response with their Title 32 status. They've also got a cybersecurity uh, volunteer reserve to go out with these National Guard units, kind of like volunteer firefighters going with, you know, the, the career guys out to these cyber incidents at local and state levels. They're called the um, Ohio uh, Volunteer Cyber Reserve, I think off the top of my head, or Ohio Cyber, cyber Force. And, uh, you know, very, very proactive. Um, one of the state adjunct generals, General Mark Bateman, was, was very instrumental in pushing that as well as, you know, the University of Cincinnati has a very robust cybersecurity program with a lot of professionals, deep, deep, deep experience. And then California, another great example, uh, they have 40 National Guardsmen on state activated duty, meaning their deployment is to their Guard Cybersecurity Watch Center in California, and they're on orders there as a full-time National Guard person as their day job for nine to five, you know, 24-7, for the duration of their deployment specifically um, for response not for monitoring and they're for, not not for, not us they do monitoring as well 
Well, monitoring as well. You have to, okay. you have to find, uh, so it's a cybersecurity watch center as well as an incident response command. And it's one of those things where it's, it's a focal point, right? So if there was an incident in LA and LA city manager needs something, you know, it's, it's somewhere to get the governor's office, you know, an answer from what does the guard have from a cybersecurity perspective? Let's call the watch center. Um, in addition to using it as a focal point for response, a lot of states use their joint state headquarters the headquarters of the National Guard to kind of quarterback a cyber incident response. A great example we saw of that was the state of Texas in Louisiana as well in 2019. They had statewide cyber uh, ransomware strikes. Texas was a great example. They actually sent out teams from uh, their joint, sta joint state headquarters all over the state to respond to the cyber ransomware strikes. And they were able to mitigate that incident in about a week, week and a half with, with their guard units going out and assisting local entities. So it's it's a very key thing in cyber, in the guard cyber especially. Not every guard unit is created equal. Not every state is created equal. And that's, that's a problem. Um, there is kind of a have and have nots. And that's something where we also wanted to emphasize that, you know, with awareness will come additional resource and training and also additional conversations of how we spread out that coverage. <clears throat> and so one thing that I'm thinking about is it, it isn't, <clears throat> you can kind of clarify this for me, but what I would think is it, it isn't just we're under attack, let's call the guard. Mm -hmm. um, I presume you have to be prepared and ready to have the guard assist. <laughs> <laughs> in the that's, response, right? So, so perhaps some too. some relationship beforehand, at least at least a plan internally to say, here's how if it reaches this point, we're going to call the guard. Uh, do you have any insight in, into that point? Uh, absolutely. Actually, that's a great point. Every network is different and it's configured differently. It's like going into somebody's neighborhood or somebody's house. It's going to look different every time. Having local knowledge is incredibly important, and also. Building pre-existing relationships is incredibly important. Um, the Maryland National Guard has a very forward-leaning set of officers who go out, and it's their SICKER team, their critical infrastructure and knowledge resource team. They go out to you know, the local water company, and they put a National Guard body in front of you as the manager of the local water utility saying, I am Colonel so-and-so, I am Major so-and-so. You know, this is me. If you have a problem, you call me, you know, we'll work our way through and we'll get you through the state process to get resources or get 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 help out there. Um, as with every other part of emergency management and information security and even just pri private and public sector relations, it's, it's all about building those public private partnerships before the incident, getting as far to the left as possible. But you have to know that they exist to call them, you know, or at least know when they show up that they're there to, to talk about that. Um, we, we did ask several folks, including in our survey, you know, do you trust the guard to, uh, to be a lead role in cyber incident response? And it, it was interesting. Uh, most of the participants, majority wanted the guard to be a leader in local and state cyber incident response, including the private sector personnel we, we, we surveyed. That was really surprising. When we asked cybersecurity professionals in the private sector, the, the couple hundred we, we got, you know, do you think the the private sector or the guard should have more of a lead role? Not the lead role, but more of a lead role. Um, most of them actually said the guard. Uh, a lot of that came down to also trust. 
there, there is a little more trust at times with the notion, the local National Guard unit because these people are local. They're not federally, you know, federally um, mandated troops or assets. They, they generally live in the same neighborhoods, live in the same states. And that's the same with our emergency management relationships for physical disaster response. People know them. Um, and then also, it's not from a competing private sector entity. You know, the, the, the public sector and the private sector, there, there's usually not a competition for, you know, IPs and things like that, any sort of, you know, information property. So really it comes down to, can you protect my proprietary company information if I bring you in and you help me secure my network? Can you, you know, guarantee that if I give you any sensitive but unclassified information to protect your network, you're not going to blast it on your Facebook page because we don't want it. You know, that's, that's, that's where really that relationship comes in. And it's a huge cornerstone of any emergency response, but especially here in the technical realm. And that was a, that was a, it was a big area of growth for a lot of our participants. So I'm going to stick with the cyber, uh, not cyber, the, the public private relationship and, sure. and the, the cyber boots that, that the guard wear, mm-hmm. how, how far can they take steps in? Cause what, what I'm picturing is a municipality that, perhaps runs a lot of their systems in the data center that's in a private sector place. How, how, how far in can a guard go <laughs> to help resolve, right? Uh, a situation. So that's a great question. Um, and that goes all the way back to the legal and authority structure we were talking about. What does their state activated duty title 32 status when they are working for the governor and working for the state of Wyoming, the state of California say they can do and how and how does that state interpret their guards role and how have they codified that in their legal structure. So a large majority of the additional guard personnel we spoke to were JAG officers, judge advocate general officers, military lawyers. And one of the primary questions, you know, we asked folks was, do you believe that the guard has the legal authority to, to do this? Again, predominantly, most folks agreed. They said, yeah, it just came down to they just didn't know exactly where. Where can I send that guard officer to go sit there and put hands on keyboard? In some states, they can't. They haven't gotten that level of granularity where Hunter, you know, Sean and Marco, the guard team that shows up to assist with this crippling ransomware strike can go in and help both find the bug, find the malware in the network, mitigate it, isolate it, and then, you know, send in the IT squadron to help you know, re-image all the computers and fix everything and everybody has a great day. There's different levels of interpretation that national legislation would absolutely help because right now it's pushing it through 50 state legislatures with different levels of enthusiasm. And you have a lot of fantastic guard personnel doing a lot with what they can at a local level, you know, where they can put hands on keyboard where they can, advising where where they can, and then also being very mindful of where their authorities end and where they need to work more directly as consultants and assistants to that private sector you know, uh, participation point. So, so that's really where I think that national legislation would make a major difference in saying, this is what Title 32 means. This is what you can do with the Guard as a state-activated entity. And this is how we protect them like any other emergency responder when they go and defend the networks that they are asked to go defend at the local and state level. So <clears throat> sometimes I, I witness this conversation, Sean brings me in, and coming from a more of a physiological and perspective, I feel like these are like cybersecurity is in beta testing still. 
you know, like <laughs> in the, now get get my point here is like you know, people don't haven't figured it out yet. Uh, the politicians are not completely all in agreement. Then there is at the federal level, the state level, the city level, whatever it is. And you just said sometimes yes, there is the tools, but they can use. It's almost like to say, look, uh, dear you know, fire squad, uh, fire department squad, you, you can go there, but you cannot enter the building with the, or break a door to save people because now we, we don't know how to handle that from a, you know, a legislative level. So it sounds to me that that's where the big issue is right now. There is the capability, there is the technology, there is the resource and the individual that can do it, but there is no clarity. That's a, that's a big part of it. Um, a lot of it also comes down to we're still trying to grasp how does cyber affect the real world. I think it became more prevalent with the Colonial Pipeline ransomware strike when half the eastern seaboard couldn't get their gas for two or three weeks. Why? You know that all of a sudden, you know, my mom, my my grandma, my 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 sister, my brother, everybody had a sudden awareness of how cyber strikes can actually affect their real lives, and and we're still. We're still coming to terms with that, both from the emergency management community, but also the wider public, you know, just just general awareness. You know, I, I grew up in Florida. Everybody could tell you hurricanes were a natural part of life. It was embedded in our psychology. You know, there are Floridians who would look at a type three or, you know, hurricane and be like, eh, am I really going to worry until it's a four or a five? And like, eh, maybe a five, I'll put up some shutters and, you know, a four, I'll just ride out the storm and call it a day. You know, there is there is a sort of understanding of traditional disasters and where their place sits in our psyche of, you know, this is a problem now or this is an emergency. We, we have not even begun to touch that from a cyber perspective. And and as our as our world becomes more interconnected from physical to, to network infrastructure, it is going to start having major effects. Um, a great example, there are there are third party hacktivist groups that for proof of concept have hacked vehicles, shut them out shut them off mid-driving. You know, there, there are folks who can do things like manipulate Wi-Fi enabled hospital equipment. Great example was the, 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 the child who was killed because of the interference with the uh, PICU, NICU, Wi-Fi enabled equipment um, in, in their hospital. You know, not directly, but indirectly, you know, patient care makes a difference. I was a provider for, for a decade, and that one hour when you're having an emergency with that patient to stabilize them, that makes a difference every minute. So if you're sitting there for 45 minutes trying to regain network connectivity to get, you know, that patient into the critical care they need, it starts really affecting physical physical uh, physical world very quickly. And I think it's drawing that connection, which which is, you know, a big part of our study, is we, we need to start looking at cyber incidents, not just as disasters from the most simplest terms of, you know, oh, we'll just fix it because there's still a very nuanced technical aspect to them, but disasters none, nonetheless. Well, look, I'm going to add to that because with the pandemic, for example, I mean, we, we have seen how the the infrastructure of the internet, the, the, the global economy, and it's all connected, right? But we're still kind of drawing the line and you you mentioned this a few times in this conversation where like the moment that it goes from a technical digital computer issue into it bleeds into reality there is still too much of my opinion and all the conversation i have over defining society of a of a line 
you know, between reality, real society and, and cyber society. And the point is, it's blurry. It's not there anymore. And so he, here's a question for you. You you mentioned that many times the National Guard are people in your neighborhood. They're ready to go. They live there. So I'm wondering, in the preventive aspect of this, how much could they actually help to go into schools, go to library, go to the business? So to help doing some sort of a public service announcement to educate the public and also say, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're here to help. If things actually happen, you can call us. So it's kind of like a double service that they would do, education and awareness at the same time. I mean, that's that's a great that's a great point. There's actually something that was brought up numerous times over the hundred hundreds of participants. They said, you know, if I had known this, exactly. I, I, would, I would have had a much deeper conversation. <laughs> actually, in Orange County, we had a participant say, you know, I've worked in the Orange County Emergency Management Agency for 20, you know, five years. I never even knew the guard had a full-time active cybersecurity watch center until you told me. And then I looked it up and lo and behold, I started talking to him. I, I think, you know, it is a combination of awareness and outreach. And part of it, part of it is on the guard to better, to better articulate their cybersecurity role. I mean, the guard, like the, the larger military still is facing a recruitment crisis. They still need to hit their goals and it's getting harder and harder to define, you know, what we need from the technical workforce, both within the private sector, the public sector, the active duty military and, and the national guard and these reserve forces, but better awareness, you know, increases both recruitment drives, collaboration opportunities, training opportunities, and networking opportunities. Uh, there were several people, both from InfoGuard Info uh, and different networking events, when we were chatting with them, they actually re reached out to the state contacts in the guard units we had chatted to and formed that connection and invited them to start participating in their exercises. Um, you know, it's, it's a matter of both getting our folks out into the field so they, people can see proof of concept. Can you actually help me? and then awareness so they can start implementing them into their plans. A great example of that was in Louisiana. They had a ransomware strike on a Friday. The guard was called out over the weekend. Schools were reinstated their networks by Monday. Much to probably everybody who goes to those schools, you know, jargon, you know, like if I was a 13 year old kid, I'd be like, no, the guard. But, you know, I, I think that's that's a very big part of the conversation. And, and I think, you, Mark, that's a great point. That's That's building a cyber mindset you know, for tomorrow today. And and it, it does come down to understanding that we do live in the beginning of the era of cyber disaster. And it's it's just a matter of time before there is such a major cataclysmic event at a state level, not federal, where it does affect a widespread group of folks. Um, and I do want to clarify that because I've had folks ask, you know, well, we have all this great awareness at the federal level, is this really necessary? Again, absolutely, it is necessary because when you think somebody hacking the Pentagon, there are seven agencies that are going to respond to that. Who helps Jackson County, Georgia? You know, who helps Howard County, Maryland? When we asked the local and state officials most affected by it and who would get the most benefit, almost every single one of the local and state personnel, you know, said immediately municipalities. Folks who lack the firepower, the IT apart, you know, departments are still paying, you know, 75% of their operating budget for ransomware strikes that they can't afford. One county got hit 
twice within a six-month period by the same actor. And they paid almost their entirety of their operating budget because they lacked cyber insurance. They lacked these resources that the federal government and state government have. Well, I wanted to uh, think, and I don't know, I know we're coming up on the end, close to the end of time here. I, I was just wondering, there must be so much knowledge as, as the, these guardsmen interact with these municipalities and, and help them respond and resolve these issues. The, the amount of knowledge that they're gaining is tremendous, right? Here's how the actors work. Here's how they laterally move. Here's the information they're gathering. Here's how they exfiltrated. Here's how the mm -hmm. ransomware is conducted. And yes, there is a key. There isn't a key. Should pay. Shouldn't just tons of stuff there that that's tribal knowledge now. Is that, and this may be forward thinking, but, it, but is that something that the guard is looking at as well to kind of help to kind of maybe back to Marco's point a little bit, reinforce the preventive measures based on what they're learning in the response part of it? So that, that is an area of growth for both the guard, public and private sector, because most private entities are wary about proprietary information going out there as well as proprietary vulnerabilities. Um, that goes back to the establishment of trust in those networks, you know, have my people help you. You represent a private sector entity that has, you know, a critical infrastructure mission. Um, we have a national security, local and state level interest in getting that information out there. They've, they've been doing that through local and state intelligence fusion cells. A lot of them have been, you know, based off of the counterterrorism and intelligence fusion cells from the global war on terror, you know, homeland security push post 9-11, where the structures have just been repurposed a little bit for some of the uh, more forward-leaning states. But there's still that agreement of exactly where we need to disseminate this knowledge. And, and that's, you know, that's a very that's a very nuanced area, both for intelligence production at a local level, for local and state resources that don't normally do an intelligence function like that, network intelligence, security intelligence, you know, uh, business intelligence for a vulnerability perspective. So the the guard still has, I think, an area to grow with that. And, and I think that comes down to better awareness. Um, I think the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, NSA, Cyber Command, those big federal agencies, they put out network defense bulletins all the time. And they've been much more forward leaning than they have in the past. If you go on their website now, you will see joint bulletins from all five agencies and sometimes other agencies from different countries. They're, they're, you know, It's a matter of transitioning that network awareness down to a more state local level using that type of model that I think we really, that that's an area where I think would be a great place for future growth. Marketing. <laughs> marketing oh man, I was going to Marketing and awareness. It's, it's all, Hey, <laughs> people know your product exists. They can buy it. You know, if they don't know exactly. it exists, they can't buy it. Well, yeah, but, that, that's how it started. I mean, we started this conversation. So, you know, if you, if you don't know, it, that's exactly marketing and branding. If you don't know this product exists, it doesn't exist. <laughs> I don't care how good it is if I don't know it's there, right? But the other yeah. thing that I, I think is talking about marketing and branding, I mean, Sean heard me say this a lot of time, but there's also kind of like a lack of real good branding from a, an infrasecurity perspective. Because I'm thinking like, well, we go back to, I'm not talking about marketing campaign in terms of TV, although a public service announcement would be cool, but I'm still thinking about the National Guard going to the school, right? Like the fire department goes and say, you know, if something happened, this is what we're going to do. And then the kid looks at the fire, you know, uh, the fire department people are like, 
wow, I want to be like that when I grow up. You know, cybersecurity is cool. I, I don't know how many times I've said this, but we don't we don't act like it, right? I mean, it should be something that a career of a kid say, wow, these guys are making a difference out there. So it could be something that resolve also, I don't know, the gap in the industry that we talk a lot about and... I, I think I think that's a great point. I mean, there there is even even just at awareness level, you know, we, we had to explain to some local state task force, you know, this is your guard POC. And it's a matter of awareness. I, I Seeing, you know, the fact that the guard has a cyber unit, if you're going to a STEM, you know, coding class in a high school is, is a great way to drive up that awareness for local STEM talent. I mean, it's it's another reason why you see such such disparities in some guard units because locally they've got the talent and once they know that the mission's there that they'll get it i, I mean silicon mm -hmm. valley is is a big portion that's why the california guard is such a robust cyber presence with with technical talent ready to go on the east coast you know us in the in the, the maryland virginia dc corridor you know pick a tech company a telco they're here and they're not just here in the boardrooms in the private sector and the public sector spaces they're also in the local universities. People know, oh, okay, I could, you know, I could go and join the guard and be, a, you know, a threat and tell analyst or a, you know, network intrusion analyst or et cetera, et cetera. And what is unique about the guard from that marketing perspective is it's a little different than the traditional armed forces where, you know, the job you're going to get when you join. And it is generally codified into your contract. There's, you know, I'm sure there are folks who, you know, will say, oh, my contract was different in fairness. Caveats aside, generally you apply to the skill field and position, and that is what you're being actively recruited for from a human resource perspective. I need an infantry officer. I need this, which is different than the Federal Reserve and military forces at the active duty level, which is you join the Army and then branch into a specialty. You join the Navy and do that, whereas the Guard has 20 jobs and they're, they're putting you in that job, and then you're joining the Army. You know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a different way they do it. So... You know, that's that's a very good point. And that comes down to looking at our cyber defenders as emergency responders, because that's what they are. That, you know, and that's that's another portion of our studies. You know, we're sitting there saying back to the original example, you know, what happens when there's a fire Call the fire department? What happens when there's, you know, a flood, you know, call the guard. What happens when there's a cyber incident? You call the guard, too. And even just getting folks to say that was a big, big, uh, a big, big win for us in some states. And in some some of our survey participants as well. And when there are ghosts, uh, who do you call? Yeah. <laughs> uh, who, who doesn't want to be a fireman or a, or a policeman, police person? You know, I, fireman, woman, you know, I don't want to put a gender on it, but who doesn't want to be in one of those roles? Add cyber to that. How cool is it? Right? How cool you know, is it? I love that. And, and I think especially when we start framing it as, you know, tomorrow's digital digital disaster and physical disaster are intertwined. You know, it's not just, a, it is a fourth dimensional battlefield and, and disaster zone now. It's not just the physical part. I need a network defender too. I need somebody who can not only, you know, deal with the physical side of that disaster. I need people to watch what's happening digitally. Last plug for that is we're especially more vulnerable now than ever before because our first responders have a lot of interlinked network devices and communication pieces. And, you know, some of the some of the best targets are local responders. One uh, mm -hmm. great example, Baltimore City, one of their major ransomware strikes a couple of years ago was their 911 call center. 
it was their ability to take 911 calls. If there is nothing more horrifying, you know, at a sociological level for a population is if you are having an emergency, pick up the phone and call 911, there's no one there. That's, you know, that's, that's something where now we've been trying to tell folks, you have your physical security aspects, but you're going to have to make sure that they are running in parallel with your network ones too. And that's where there's a place for a network defender. Yeah. Disruption is disruption. Um, I, I think it, it's hard to figure all the scenarios out, <laughs> which is why, why it's so challenging, right? You just that one in itself is, is pretty powerful and there are a gazillion of them and it may not immediately result in a patient on a hospital bed passing, but it could ultimately impact a lot of societies and, and, I don't know. I don't, we can go for hours on scenarios. Oh, yeah. I don't want to do that. <laughs> but what I do want to cover as we wrap here though, Hunter is um, so hopefully we, we get some more uh, national guard folks uh, listening to the show now in it and, and cyber. Um, but a lot of, a lot of the audience are practitioners and security mm-hmm. leaders and, and executive mm-hmm. level security managers. And so maybe a, a note to that audience uh, specifically in, in the municipality and those that work with them, how they might take a first step to to uh, take action on some of the things you've presented here today. Uh, a lot, a lot of it starts at the the local and county level. Uh, usually, like any other disaster response, the request for assistance goes up from the lowest level. Local, municipal, and county level government emergency management agencies are a great place to start. If nothing else, they have contacts within their local state IT agencies as well as their guard units. Uh, one particular example of that is we had a local local private public sector uh, folks reach out to us saying, you know, who do I even contact? And we, we set them up with their local state emergency management agency at the county level and explained, you know, this is the process. So just having a network to start, um, I, would, I would look at your emer- local emergency management agency. Nothing else as well. Local guard makes a difference too. Uh, most of these units have geographically based uh, personnel as well as a guard office. Um, National Guard Bureau generally has uh, state adjunct general's offices within every, every single uh, state government. There are generally POCs there as well to reach out to. Um, but, but usually we, we recommend the local state emergency county level to start. Uh, if they don't have the personnel integrated there, then we usually recommend reaching out to the guard. Uh, Maryland is a great example. I, I'm going to keep using them because they, they were they were pretty proactive when we were doing some of our initial survey work. Uh, they, they have that sicker team of six or seven people, and they are the point of contact for, you know, the water industry, the, the, the local power industry. If you are an executive that's running, you know, a utility company, knowing that I've got at least somebody I can call when we think we're having a problem, goes back to that reassurance of you pick up the phone and you can dial 911. Someone's going to be on the other end that you know um, versus no one. There's no, you know, one of the most powerful things in a disaster is the feeling of being alone or not knowing who to talk to. So if nothing else, building those networks and connections now, I think is the most important. And and those are usually where we recommend folks start. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I'm, I'm uh, super glad you brought this to our attention and I'm grateful we're able to have this conversation with you to, to bring it to, uh, to more folks and hopefully hopefully raise that awareness um, and uh, help people understand that this service is there uh, if they need it. And Marco, it was great to have you on with me as well. Kind of bringing. Well, thanks you for having me. I learned a lot of things today. There you go. 
Well, thank you guys very much you. for the invitation. <laughs> yes. uh, no, it's good stuff. And, and Hunter, uh, perhaps you'll send a few links over that we can include in the show notes. Uh, yep. I don't know if there's specific cyber guard links or uh, maybe your study, if, you, if that's mm-hmm. available for people to read. It I, should be available very shortly. And we're, uh, we are, I, I'm waiting on the final publication now, uh, but it, it will be actually openly available. Uh, we, we didn't put it behind any paywall or anything. We, we threw it out on the open internet. Um, once the copyright piece is done, St. John's University is working on the last parts of publishing now, but it, it will be available to anybody to see it. Perfect. Perfect. Good stuff. We'll keep up the good work and uh, pleasure meeting you, pleasure chatting with you. And thanks everybody for listening to uh, this episode of Redefining Cybersecurity here on ITSP Magnetic. Pentera, the leader in automation security validation, allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at Pentera.io. Imperva is the cybersecurity leader whose mission is to protect data and all paths to it with a suite of integrated application and data security solutions. Learn more at Imperva.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Security Podcast. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24.